Let us pray. Father, we thank you for giving us your word written that points us to the word incarnate. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for his gospel. We thank you for the salvation he has brought to us. Father, we thank you for fulfilling all of your promises in him. All your promises are yes and amen in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, Father, today and every day, may we see his power at work in our lives, transforming us, conforming us to his own image, causing us to grow in holiness and in love and in righteousness and in wisdom. And may we see his power at work in the world around us as your kingdom advances, bringing justice and mercy and compassion and grace into the world. Father, we long to see your your kingdom come, as you have promised, to transform the nations, for the nations to be brought to the obedience of faith. Father, would you cause these things to happen, all for your glory, for the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. We have read Romans, the opening verses, and in these opening verses of this letter to the Romans, Paul introduces himself to a church he's never met in person. Most of the churches Paul writes letters to, he knows personally. He either planted the church or he's visited there already. He hopes to visit the Romans, but he hasn't made it yet. So he writes this letter to prepare the way. He's introducing himself to them. And there's a lot about that personal introduction that is interesting. But in these opening verses, he also introduces his gospel to these Roman Christians. And that's really what we're interested in this morning. In fact, it is what Paul was most interested in when he wrote these verses. He's got a lot more to say about the gospel than himself here. And anything he does say about himself is tied very much to this gospel. So what is the gospel according to the Apostle Paul? Well, the first thing to notice about Paul's gospel here is that it is rooted in the Hebrew Scriptures, what we call the Old Testament. It is rooted in the Hebrew Scriptures. In verse 2, Paul says this gospel was promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. What that means is for Paul, the gospel cannot be understood apart from the promises God made in the Old Testament. It cannot be understood apart from those promises made in the Old Testament Scriptures because the Gospel is the fulfillment of those promises. What is the Gospel? The Gospel is the fulfillment of the promises God has made. The Gospel is God doing what He promised to do. It is the fulfillment of what God spoke through the prophets. Christians sometimes wonder, what do we do with the Old Testament? Is the Old Testament the Word of God emeritus? Do we need to pay any attention to the Old Testament? Do we still need the Old Testament? Or can we be New Testament Christians? Well, Paul says here, his gospel is rooted in those Old Testament scriptures. He shows us the Old Testament is a Christian book. We don't have to somehow make it Christian by doing all kinds of crazy things in the way we read it. No, it's already Christian. It's always been Christian because it is all about Christ. It bears witness to him. And again and again, the New Testament shows this, that the New Testament, 
the, the, the New Testament shows us that the Old Testament was all about Jesus prophesying and promising what he would come to do. It's like the Old Testament gives us the blueprints. The blueprints of what Christ will do and what he will build when he comes. Those blueprints are given in the form of types and shadows that reveal to us ahead of time Christ's sufferings and his glory. The suffering he would endure and the glory he would enter into. It's all already there in the Old Testament. It's already a book about Jesus. We don't have to put Jesus there. We just have to discover him. He's already there. And so every Christian should be committed to learning the art, and it really is an art, but every Christian should be committed to the art of learning how to rightly read the Old Testament. It's a skill we must have. We're going to see in just a minute how Paul picks up on one key strand of the Old Testament. He picks up on the David strand. Uh, He picks up on David and identifies Jesus in terms of his connection to David and the promises God made to David. But it's not just David. Everything in the Old Testament is about Jesus and points us to him. Which means you cannot understand Jesus without the Old Testament and you cannot understand the Old Testament without Jesus. The Old Testament is the lock. Jesus is the key. He opens it up for us. On the other hand, there's a sense in which Jesus is the lock and the Old Testament is the key. The Old Testament opens up for us who Jesus is, what he's come to do, what he's all about. And I hope this is a church where, over the course of time, you can learn how to read the Old Testament this way, how you you can become skilled in this art of interpreting the Old Testament in this kind of way, because it is an essential skill. Paul tells us here, if we want to know the gospel, we have to see how it was promised beforehand through the prophets. Jesus is in the Old Testament, and the Old Testament is in Jesus. The backstory to the story of the gospel is the Old Testament. See, think think, think about the Old Testament for just a minute. The Old Testament is clearly an unfinished story. The Old Testament is clearly a story in search of an ending. If you read through the Old Testament, you see there is this gradually building expectation of one God would sin and an action that God would perform. And yet you come to the end of the Old Testament... And you're left hanging. Israel, this nation that's been set aside as the people of God through whom he would work to bless all the nations. Israel, the people he set aside through whom the promised seed of the woman, the Messiah, would come. Israel has been left longing and hoping for something that hasn't happened yet. And what's interesting is by the time you get to what we call the first century, Different groups within Israel had different ideas of how the story would end. They were each trying to write their own ending to the Old Testament story. The Pharisees had their ideas of how the story would end. The Sadducees had their version of how the story would go. The the Zealots had another set of expectations. This is how the story goes. This is how we're going to write the ending to the Old Testament story. But no one was ready for the way God actually brought the story to its culmination in the death and resurrection of Jesus. They should have been, but they weren't. No one was expecting a crucified Messiah. In fact, they would have said getting nailed to a cross by the Roman Empire would have proved that you are not the Messiah. 
You're just another pretender. You're just another failed Messiah. Uh, The Messiah can't have wounds inflicted on him by Roman soldiers. No, the Messiah is the one who is supposed to inflict wounds on the Roman soldiers and on the Roman Empire. That was the expectation many of them had. But Paul's going to show here how the death and resurrection of Jesus really do fulfill God's promises. How in the death and resurrection of Jesus, the story has really been completed. How does the Old Testament, this unfinished story, how does it come to an end? Where does it find its completion? In Jesus, in his death, and in his resurrection. And the reality is, like any good story, once you get to the final chapter, and you have read the surprise ending, You can look back over the whole narrative and say, yes, now I see why it had to end this way. I see why the story had to go this way. The clues were there all along. I just missed them. But now I can see it had to go this way. And that's what Paul's doing here. He's saying this is the surprise ending to the Old Testament story, the surprising conclusion. But now you look back across the Old Testament, you can say, aha, yes, it had to be this way. Now, Paul calls his gospel the gospel of God's Son in verse 3. He says this gospel is concerning his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Paul's gospel is not an idea or a concept or something we do. It's not even an experience we have. No, Paul's gospel is a person. It's God's Son. God's incarnate Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Gospel because He fulfills the promises. All of the promises are fulfilled in Him. Those promises God spoke beforehand, they find their fulfillment in Jesus. And so Jesus Himself is the Gospel. When we Christians say Gospel, we mean Jesus. He is the Gospel. He is God's good news. Jesus is the Gospel. The Gospel is not so much a what, but a who. The content of the Gospel is Jesus. The Gospel is concerned with Jesus. The story of the Gospel is the story of Jesus. There's a reason why we call those four books Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. In telling the story of Jesus, they're revealing to us the good news. How Jesus has fulfilled those promises God made beforehand. How he is accomplishing all that God promised to do. The story of Jesus is the story of the gospel. Jesus completes the unfinished story of the Old Testament. In doing so, he fulfills God's promises. And in doing so, Jesus himself becomes the gospel. Jesus is the gospel. But let's talk about that word, gospel, for just a moment. Because we might assume we know more about the term than we actually do. We know the word gospel means good news. And a lot of times we say, well, it's good news, not just good advice. Okay, That's true. But there's something else here that we might miss especially as modern American Christians who have been trained to think of our faith and and to think of the gospel in very privatized type ways. We really confine the gospel to our own personal and private experience. Gospel, that term, gospel was already a term very much in use in the first century. Uh, The term gospel was a political term in the first century. 
A gospel, just in the generic sense, the way the term would have been used, a gospel is a royal or imperial announcement of good news. That's how the term was used in the Roman Empire. In fact, actually, if you look at the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures, that's really how it's used there as well. It, it has to do with royalty, uh, with with an empire or with a kingdom, the coming of a kingdom or the victory that a kingdom has won. So this is how the term gospel would be used in the first century. Uh, let's say Caesar has won a great battle against an enemy. Let's just say for the sake of argument, Caesar has won a great battle against the Gauls. And so what would Caesar do? He would send his messengers his apostles, if you will, throughout the whole empire. And those messengers would go into all the towns and cities and they would gather a crowd around them and then they would announce, I proclaim to you today the gospel of Caesar that Caesar's armies have defeated the Gauls. And then everybody would cheer and celebrate this great victory that Caesar has won, this good news that has reached them from the battlefield. What is a gospel? It's an announcement of an event that has taken place in history. It's public. It's political. It's history changing. Caesar's messengers didn't go around announcing private experiences. They didn't go around dispensing good advice to people. They declared and announced a great victory. Something Caesar had accomplished. Now, Paul and the other New Testament figures deliberately chose to use this word gospel for a reason. The gospel is a declaration of fact, of what is the case, what is now the case. It's a declaration of what has been accomplished. It's a proclamation of victory. It's a proclamation of a great triumph that has been won. A great victory won in history that changes history. To announce a gospel means things are going to be different now. On the other side of this gospel, the world is going to be changed. It's not about personal feelings. It's not about our personal experiences. Though I would say the gospel, the gospel of Christ, should produce certain feelings. And it should produce certain experiences in our lives. That's not the gospel. And again, neither is the gospel advice or counsel. Though the gospel does give us wisdom for living. It does bring with it a new way of life. That's not what the gospel is. So Paul's gospel went something like this. He would go to a town as an apostle of Jesus, not as Caesar's messenger, but as Jesus' messenger. As God's messenger, he would go into all these towns and cities and he would gather a crowd around himself and he would announce, I have a gospel. Jesus Christ has won a great victory. Jesus Christ has won a great victory over sin, death, and Satan. He is the promised Son of God who came into our world as one of us, as God incarnate, to fulfill God's plan of salvation as foretold in the Hebrew prophets, and he is now Savior and King of the world. That is how Paul preached the gospel. Now let me ask you a question. Is that what most Christians, or most Christian preachers, or most churches mean by the gospel today? 
in our context? Is that what most Christian churches mean by gospel? I hope so, but I'm not so sure. A lot of times for Christians today, the gospel goes something like this. Preachers will say, I've got something I want to share with you. Okay, so we've already moved from a uh, from an authoritative proclamation to something that's being shared, maybe even out of timidity. So we've already diluted the gospel's power by thinking of it as something that's just shared as opposed to something that is authoritatively declared as fact. And then the modern preacher will go on to say something like this. We all long for peace, and you can experience peace in your life if you will invite Jesus into your heart, and he will become your personal Savior. Okay, now there are things about that that are, that are good and true and right, but note what's happened. Note the shift that's taken place. The gospel is now not about something God has done in history, but about something we do in our hearts. And so this message that for Paul was an announcement of something that has taken place in history and that has changed history has now become a message that is spiritualized and privatized. So really the gospel has been shrunk. The gospel has been truncated. And you actually get the impression that the Christian is going to be somebody who lives in two worlds. A private world shaped by the gospel and a public world shaped by secularism. And so what was public and political for Paul is now private and personal for the modern preacher. You know, Jesus has his realm, the realm of your heart, and, and, and Caesar has his realm the public realm, that belongs to Caesar. And so the gospel no longer is about what Jesus has done in history to bust down the doors of Satan's kingdom and to set the captives free and to make the world a new place. No, now it's about our decision to open the doors of our hearts so Jesus will have permission to come into our private lives. And this message that was public and political and history-changing in Paul's day, has been privatized and personalized in our day. So it does nothing more than perhaps rearrange our, our, our private lives, but that's it. And even then, not all of our lives, just those parts that are private. Now here's the thing. It's not that that modern gospel can't bring peace to people. It's not that that modern gospel can't bring people to salvation. I think there's still more than enough truth there to do that. I grant that. But it's still not the full gospel Paul preached. It's not a gospel in the ancient sense of, uh, of what gospel means. And so it's no wonder it doesn't have the same effects that the ancient gospel had, the gospel Paul preached. It's no wonder it doesn't have the same effect on people's lives and in history. We've diluted the gospel. We have weakened it and privatized it and spiritualized it. And now we've got this wimpy, effeminate Jesus, as J.I. Packer says, tapping forlornly on the door of, of someone's heart to enter into his private life. We've shrunk the gospel down. And we don't have this Jesus who is king and lord over everything. The gospel does produce peace in our lives. We do experience peace because of the gospel. We do and must experience God's presence in our lives through the gospel. He does become your personal Lord and Savior. He does come 
and take up residence in your hearts. But He becomes your personal Lord and Savior precisely because He is already a cosmic Lord and Savior. And that's what we have to see. You experience peace not because you chose to let Him into your heart, but because He has conquered the enemies that robbed us of our peace. Sin and death and Satan. The reality is there can be no apolitical gospel, no privatized gospel. You just wouldn't have used the word gospel for that kind of thing in the first century. There were private religions where people had private mystical type experiences. They were familiar with that kind of thing in the first century. But you would not have used a gospel to describe that kind of thing in the first century. Now, to say the gospel is political, that, that, needs, that needs some clarification. That doesn't mean the gospel is political in the sense of select this candidate or pass that piece of legislation. The gospel has downstream implications for those kinds of things, but that, that doesn't mean that that's the gospel, electing this candidate or, or passing that bill. The gospel is not political in the sense of belonging to one nation or people group. That would be a big mistake to to tie the gospel to a particular ethnicity in that way when really the gospel is just the opposite. It's intended for all peoples, all nations, all tongues, tribes, and languages. The gospel is not political in the sense that it would be advanced with the sword or with military might. That's very clearly not the case. And it's not political in the sense of confusing church and state or combining church and state in some kind of way. Sometimes people think, oh, well, if the gospel is political, that means that church and state are going to somehow be fused together into one. No, those are those are distinct institutions. They must remain distinct institutions. No, that's not it. When we say the gospel is political, this is what we mean. We mean Jesus is king. We mean Jesus is Lord. We don't make him king and lord. He already is king and lord. Jesus is king of kings and lord of lords. He has authority over all. All authority in heaven and earth have been granted to him. Jesus has all authority over all nations, individuals, and institutions. And so every nation, every individual, every institution is obligated to bow the knee to Jesus and obey his word. That's what we mean when we say the gospel is political. We mean Jesus is king. We say Jesus is king and we really mean it. He really is Lord over all. That confession, Jesus is Lord, when I confess with my mouth and believe in my heart Jesus is Lord, that's not merely a private opinion I have. You can't just say, well, that's true for you. I mean, that's a terrible phrase anyway. That makes no sense. But that's what people, oh, that's true for you. No, what we are saying is this is a public fact. It is a public truth, a political truth. The gospel is political, meaning we are not only aiming to disciple individuals in the ways of Jesus, we're seeking to disciple nations. We don't want to just save individuals here and there. We don't want to just see individuals here and there brought to Christ. We want to see whole nations converted, baptized, transformed. It's not only about the transformed individual life. It's about transformed nations and cultures and civilizations. And in fact, Jesus promises to do just these things. See, this is one thing that happens if you detach the gospel from the Old Testament. 
then maybe you can move in this direction of privatizing and spiritualizing the gospel, making it something that just affects our inner lives, our hearts. But if you understand that he came to fulfill the promises, what kind of promises did God make? His promise was of a global kingdom. His promise in Genesis 12 was to bless all the families of the earth through Abraham's seed. His promise in Psalm 2 is that his son, this seed of David he will send, is going to inherit the nations. His promise in Psalm 110 is that this king will make all of his enemies a footstool for his feet. Those are the kinds of promises Paul is saying will be fulfilled in Jesus. And for those promises to be fulfilled, the gospel has to do a lot more than just change individual lives. The gospel has to change the direction and flow and shape of history. The gospel transforms people and it transforms their cultures. It brings about what we could call Christendom. The dominion of Christ, a, a Christian civilization. That's the gospel. And it's good news. This is good news because to the degree that Jesus is served in the public realm and in the political realm, to the degree Jesus is served in public life, to the degree that his word is applied and obeyed to public and political life, our individual lives will be better. Society will be more compassionate. Justice will be more impartial. Violence will be less frequent. Forgiveness will be more common. Families will flourish. The gospel is public truth. And this is good news. It's good news that the good news is public and political in this way. Now, not everybody sees it that way. Not everybody agrees with that. Uh, not everyone wants the gospel to be public uh, and, and, and political in this kind of way. And when you announce it in this way, there are many who are threatened by it and want to push back against it. And that is why when the gospel is properly preached, a lot of people really don't like it. Because they can see what a threat it is to the way things are. They've got a lot invested in the status quo. And this gospel would shake things up. You know what the accusation was against the Christians who preached the gospel in the book of Acts? And think about whether or not anybody faces this kind of accusation for preaching the gospel today. You know, if, if our gospel does not meet with this kind of accusation, maybe we're not doing it right. But in Acts 17, as Christians were preaching the gospel, this was the accusation. These men, that is, these apostles, these Christians, these men have turned the world upside down. They are against the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. That's what gospel preaching does. It provokes that kind of accusations. Non-Christians will accuse us of turning the world upside down. We would say we're just putting the world right side up again. But they'll accuse us of turning the world upside down. They will accuse us of treason and sedition because we preach another king. Because we say Caesar's not really in charge. The president is not really in charge. The gods of sex and money and power are not really in charge. The, the principalities and powers, those idols that people give their lives to, those idols that seem so strong and influential, those false gods that people enthrone in their lives, they're not really in charge. And all those false gods are going to be vanquished by Jesus because he is king. He is the world's rightful king. 
The Christians there in Acts 17 were accused of preaching contrary to to the decrees of Caesar. But what were some of Caesar's decrees? They were challenging. Well, let me give you just one example of this. We have an inscription uh, dated from 17 BC. So this is just a few years before Jesus was born. But this kind of thing would have been repeated again and again, almost like our Pledge of Allegiance gets repeated again and again. This was a, uh, a decree of Caesar. Uh, by Caesar Augustus, and this is what Caesar Augustus proclaimed. This was his decree. Salvation is to be found in none other than Augustus, and there is no other name given to men in which they can be saved. Now you might think, well, yeah, that sounds a little bit familiar. <laughs> well, in Acts chapter 4, when Peter is preaching, he virtually quotes that decree of Caesar verbatim. But where Caesar Augustus has his name, Peter puts the name of Jesus instead. And so Peter decrees, contrary to the decrees of Caesar, Peter decrees in Acts 4.12, salvation is in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which they can be saved. He's speaking of the name Jesus. Not Caesar's name, but Jesus' name. Peter knew Caesar's decree. And he saw it for what it was, a counterfeit gospel. And so he preached the true gospel, the true gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, the gospel of Christ. Christ is a different kind of king, and he brings in a different kind of salvation. He's got a different kind of kingdom. And in making this decree, yes, Peter's preaching contrary to the decrees of Caesar. That's very explicit. Peter's just putting Caesar in his place. And that is why eventually Caesar began persecuting the church because Caesar realized this really is a rival. Just as Herod had realized when Jesus was born, this really is a rival. Now here's the crucial thing to understand. I think if you put the modern church with that modern preacher and his modern gospel that I already talked about, that modern gospel where it is Nothing more than a personal relationship with Jesus. If you were to take all of that from the modern day and drop that out down into the first century, you know, drop the modern day preacher, modern day church down into the first century Roman Empire. I don't think today's church would get persecuted by Caesar. I don't think today's Christians, for the most part, would be persecuted by Caesar. What reason would Caesar have to persecute today's preacher? The modern preacher who offers nothing but a private experience of Jesus in your life. That's no threat to Caesar. Today's preacher doesn't preach another king. He preaches another experience. But Caesar doesn't care about that. Today's preacher doesn't really preach another king. Caesar never cared about people's private experiences. That was never an issue. You might argue today's church does pretty much everything Caesar would have wanted. Caesar said to the church in the first century, if you'll just keep this private, if you'll worship Jesus in private, we don't care. Worship Jesus all you want in private. Experience his peace in private all you want. We don't care about that. Because that kind of church would have been completely compliant. That kind of church with that kind of private faith, that kind of private religious experience... Caesar wouldn't have cared. Caesar never cared what people did with their private lives or in their private experiences. So there would be no reason to persecute such a gospel if it could be called a gospel at all. No, the early Christians were charged with treason for precisely this reason. 
because they claim Jesus is Lord. Jesus is King. They claimed it as public truth and they meant every word of it. The modern church is more or less exactly what Rome wanted the church to be. Not an alternative empire, not an alternative kingdom, not an alternative social order within Rome's empire, subverting that empire in order to transform it. No, today's church is more like a a private club, a Jesus fan club that remains largely irrelevant to the real world. And this is because we have truncated the gospel. Therefore, we've truncated the Christian life and we've truncated the mission of the church. See, the gospel declares Jesus as Lord. In fact, not even that's really enough to say Jesus is Lord. Let's put it this way. The gospel is Jesus is Lord of all. Anything less than that is not enough. It's not enough. It means we've shrunk the gospel. Jesus is Lord. He is Lord of all. And so the gospel is not just life-changing. Yes, Jesus does come into your heart and you have a personal relationship with him, no doubt. And he brings you experiences of peace and joy, no doubt. But the gospel is more than that. It's not just life-changing. It is world-changing. The gospel then, we could say, not only completes the story of Israel, it really completes the story of the world. It's really the center of the world's story. This is gospel story. This is what the whole history of the world is about. And the whole history of the world pivots around this. This story is central. If you think about the flow of history as a river, what is the central current in that river? It is the gospel. It is central to the flow of history, shaping things as they happen, provided we get it right. So Paul's gospel concerns God's son. He goes on in verse 4 to say he is descended from David. He is the promised seed of David. This goes back to 2 Samuel 7, where God said David's seed, David's son, would reign on his throne forever. And in fact, we find in the rest of, uh, of the Old Testament, David's throne and God's throne come to be identified. And so it's fitting that a God-man, one who is God's son and David's son, sits on that throne. Paul is saying Jesus is David's promised seed who would reign forever. In Psalm 72, we find how he will extend his reign, not just over Israel, but from the river to the ends of the earth. His reign will ultimately extend over all nations. Jesus fulfills these promises as one who, according to his humanity, descends from David. And then Paul goes on to tell us in his resurrection, he has been appointed Or the word could mean installed, or it could be translated as inaugurated. Jesus in his resurrection has been inaugurated as the Son of God in power. It means in his resurrection, his resurrection is his coronation. It means he has been crowned as Son of God in power. Now, Jesus was the Son of God in human flesh before his resurrection, obviously. He lived his whole life and then suffered his death as the Son of God in human form. So what what is Paul saying? What happened at his resurrection? What changes with his resurrection? Well, now as the God-man, as the risen God-man, the one who has been crucified but now raised from the dead, he rules over all and he reveals the very glory of God in himself. The resurrection of Jesus is the turning point in the life of Jesus. It is the great turning point in the history of the world. He was God's Son in weakness prior to his resurrection. He was the Son of God, but in weakness, now he is the Son of God in power. 
And so the crucified one is now seated at God's right hand, reigning over all, and he will fulfill the promises by extending his dominion. He died in weakness for our sins, according to the scriptures, so God's promises of forgiveness could be fulfilled. And he was raised in power on the third day by the Holy Spirit to bring us into his his new humanity and into his new creation to establish and inaugurate his kingdom. The resurrection of Jesus means the kingdom of God has come in power. Those prophets in the Old Testament scriptures, they continually talk about a new age that was coming. The resurrection means that age to come is here. The new creation is here. The kingdom is here and it's here with power. And his resurrection means we already share in his resurrection life. We will share in his resurrection in his bodily resurrection at the last day in fullness when our bodies are raised, but already his resurrection life, his resurrection power has been unleashed in the world. It's been unleashed in our lives. And so again, Jesus' resurrection completes the story of Israel because our future resurrection is included in his resurrection. In fact, it's really interesting. In in verse 4, Paul actually says, when he speaks of the resurrection of Jesus, he speaks of the resurrection of the dead ones indicate that Jesus' resurrection is the first fruits of a great multitude, a great harvest of resurrections that will happen, that will come to pass at the last day. And so really you could say the gospel not only completes the story of the old covenant, it not only completes that old covenant story, it's really the beginning of a new story. The resurrection story, the kingdom story has now begun. So what response does this gospel call for from us? Paul says he has received this gospel to bring about the obedience of faith for Jesus' sake among all nations. What what response does this gospel call for? Paul says the obedience of faith. Now what does that mean? Paul's not confusing faith and obedience. They are distinct. But he's saying they are inseparable. This is both the obedience that consists in faith. Faith is a form of obedience. God commands faith. And so we obey that command by putting our trust in Jesus. But it's also the obedience that grows out of faith. This whole new way of living. This new way of life. That emerges from the gospel. That grows out of our faith in Christ. The gospel calls on us to trust Christ. To entrust ourselves to him. For our salvation. To look to him. And rest in him as the one who can deliver us from sin and what we deserve because of our sin. But it also calls on us to obey all of Christ's commands in all of life. See, all of Christ's word applies to all of life. So like I said already, the the gospel's not a get-out-of-hell-free card. It's not just about saving us from hell. It's about saving us to obedience, to a new way of life. If we trust Christ as our Savior from sin, we will seek to obey Him as the Lord of our lives. And so understand, this gospel will meddle with every part of your life. It's going to change you and change everything you do. It's going to change the, 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 the culture you produce around you. When we respond to this gospel with the obedience of faith, 
all that is Christ's becomes ours. His story becomes our story. Or better, we could say, we're grafted into his story. His story becomes our story. And and, and so now, when we suffer, our sufferings are sharing in his sufferings. We're not suffering alone. We can now make sense out of our suffering by looking to the story of Jesus. And we know he's with us in our suffering. But not only that... We share in his story of triumph. We share in his victory. We know we can overcome sin and temptation in our lives by his power. We know how this story is going to unfold. Christ is going to win, which means we're going to win. And of course, we share in his mission. His mission to the nations, just as Paul shared in his mission to the nations. This is not, again, just about getting individuals here and there saved. It's about transforming the world. Paul calls himself a servant of Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel. You know, it's interesting, in the Old Testament, many of the great saints in the Old Testament are identified as servants of the Lord. Moses, Joshua, Job, they're all identified as servants of the Lord. Paul now says he's a servant of Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is the Lord. Jesus is Yahweh incarnate. Paul says he's a servant of the Lord Jesus. We are servants of the Lord Jesus as well. We've been made servants of Jesus. And just as Paul knew, he had to take this message to the nations, so we must take this message to the nations as well. Understand, you cannot believe this gospel. You cannot believe that all these things are true and then be indifferent to the fate of the nations. You cannot believe all these things are true and then be indifferent to the fate of those who have not heard of Jesus. You cannot believe all these things are true and then be indifferent to the church's global mission. Paul says this mission to the nations is for his name's sake. That's to say it's for the glory of Jesus. More than anything else, what do we want? We want to see Jesus glorified in our own lives and in the lives of the nations. We want to see a world glorifying Jesus. One global family of faith glorifying Jesus. Paul says that's what he's aiming at. And we must aim at it as well. I saw an article in the last week where President Xi of China is terrified by the surging numbers of Christians in his nation. There are 100 million strong and growing. There are more Christians in China worshiping the Lord Jesus today than there are Christians in the U.S. And and, and praise God for that, for his work there in China. And the church there is surging. It's growing despite President Xi's attempts to squash it, despite increased surveillance, especially during this pandemic, Despite all of his attempts to crack down on it, the church continues to grow. And his biggest fear is that as the church continues to grow, eventually the Chinese Communist Party will be toppled. It will in some way have to share power with these Christians because they'll be so strong in number or these Christians will simply subvert the Chinese Communist Party altogether. President Xi's world is going to be turned upside down sooner or later by this guy. And what's happening there must happen everywhere. See, we, Christians, we are taking over the world. Forget what you hear in the news every night. That's not really the news. This is the news. Jesus is Lord. We are taking over the world. Jesus is taking over the world. Maybe that's a better way to put it. 
Jesus is taking over the world, but he is using us to do it. Jesus is taking over the world and he will settle for nothing less. He died to purchase the nations with his blood. He rose again from the dead to reign over those nations. And he sends us out to bring about the obedience of faith in all nations. And this is good news. This is the good news. This is the gospel. It's the gospel the world needs. What the world needs more than anything is Jesus. The world needs Jesus. Only he can fix what is wrong with the world. Only he can deal with broken families and broken governments and broken economies and and broken people and broken hearts. Only Jesus can fix those things. Paul says later in chapter 1, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all those who believe. The gospel is the power of God. The power of God to, 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 to cleanse you. The gospel has cleansing power. There's liberating power in the gospel. There's renewing power in the gospel. There's saving power in the gospel. Do you understand that? The gospel has power to save you. Don't you know He was pierced for your transgressions? He was crushed for your iniquities. He died to reconcile you to God, to bring peace to you, to make you a new creation. Don't you know He's your Savior and your King? And if He's done this work in you and for you, He can do it for anyone. And He can do it for the nation. Jesus breaks the power of reigning sin and sets the prisoner free. Again, the Gospel's not just about being saved from hell, as, 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 as glorious as that is in itself. Yes, it does save us from hell, but it also brings us into a new creation with a new way of life. The gospel brings us into a kingdom. We have been saved from hell and to obedience. Saved from hell and to righteousness. You know, so many people outside and frankly even inside the church are in some kind of bondage. Bondage to fear, Bondage to lusts, bondage to guilt, bondage to shame, bondage to to sadness, bondage to greed. Jesus is greater than all of those things. Jesus shows us how the story goes, how it ends, and how we're going to get there. Jesus sets us free. He gives us peace, joy, and strength. He came to save us. He came to save the nations. And so Christian, today, know you have nothing to fear. You as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, as members of his kingdom, members of his new creation, citizens in this new world he's brought in, you can live with freedom and with joy and with confidence no matter what. Because your king is the king over all. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.